Will you pray with me? Father, even though I'm praying this prayer about 24 hours before the rest of us are going to be praying it with me, you are the God of all time and all places. And so I ask that you would take what you have given me to share this morning, apply it to our hearts. Please help me not to fall prey to thinking that I have to communicate perfectly in order for your spirit to do what you've called us to hear and to respond to. That he will perfectly take my words, even if they are far from perfect, which I'm sure they will be, and use them for your glory. So we give these next moments to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've done a pre-record. And I'm looking forward to being with you uh, live and in person next week. But for today, I want us to get started um, thinking about this final sermon of Joshua's. But before we get there, I want us to go back about 30 years to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. Because I want you to understand that even though what Joshua challenges the people to do in the passage that we're going to be reading and and studying um, may seem like a crisis, or a a liminal moment of decision, it wasn't with God. Probably 30-plus years earlier, before Moses died, when the Israelites were still on the other side of the Jordan, um, God said these words in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. It says the the Lord had, had brought Moses before his presence, and he says to him, You are about to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon commit adultery with the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will abandon me and break the covenant I have made with them. That's kind of a downer. (laughs) But you know what? It's not so much when you realize the fact that God knows long before we ever make the mistakes that we do, the sins that we commit, long before we ever get there, the Lord knows what's going to happen, and he's already prepared for it. He told Moses, but he also said it in Joshua's ears as well because Joshua was with Moses at this moment in Deuteronomy 31, and Moses was about to have him anointed as his successor. And so Joshua knew that he was going to have to be courageous and lead the people with fierce loyalty to God and to them because they were going to wander away from him. So in chapter 24 of Joshua, we have this big meeting at Shechem. Now this is different from chapter 23, the one we looked at last week, because at this point now, they're all coming together. Um, We learn in the book of Joshua that Shechem was where they had set up the tabernacle, that place of worship before there was a temple, that movable worship center, and it was set up at Shechem. And so that was the place that they kind of saw as their spiritual capital. Before they had anything, all they had was the land that they had inherited, that they were in the process of conquering. They had pretty well gotten at peace. And Joshua begins chapter 24 actually with God speaking through him. And without reading all of the first 13 verses, if you have a Bible in front of you or on your tablet or something, you can kind of scan down and see that God begins saying right there in what it would be about verse 2, I did these things for you. I called Abraham out of Ur, I brought him to this land, I took you to Egypt, I brought you out of Egypt, I took care of you, I protected you, I looked over you, and again and again and again and again and again and again and again, in verses 1 through 13, it's I, 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 to remind them of all that God had done for them. So God is speaking in the first person, 
And he is just telling them back their history. So they could see their history from his perspective and see all that he had done for them, including conquering kings, giving them victory in the land of Canaan, uh, the battle at Jericho, all of those things that had happened during that time. And so then we come to the passage for today that begins at verse 14. And at verse 14, what happens is if you'll notice very subtly, without even a change in the quotation marks, because Joshua has been speaking for God all this time, verses 1 to 13. But you get to verse 14, and he says, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods of your father, that your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourselves today the one you will choose. The gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. So what I want to do is we're going to read on from there, and we're going to look at what God actually, or excuse me, what Joshua and the people actually did in this passage. Then we're going to determine what that meant for them in their day, and then we'll take most of our time to talk about what it means for us in our day. So let's start with what happened first. First, we have this exhortation that I just read to you. Joshua gives them a challenge. He's recounted, or God through him has recounted all that God had done for them from the very beginning. And so Joshua says, based on all that God has done for you, you have a decision to make. You have to decide whether you are going to follow God or whether you are going to follow the gods around you. And they respond to him in verse 16 with one voice, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. For the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, performed these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us along the way. We went among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. Sounds like a great response, doesn't it? It's like a great response to Joshua's challenge. Joshua says, you need to choose. Are you going to worship the Lord God and him alone, or are you going to worship all these other gods? They said, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to worship the Lord. He is ours through and through. He, look at all he has done for us. Look at the way he has protected us. Look at how he is taking care of us. And because he's done this great thing for us, we're going to do something for him. We are going to choose him, and we're going to worship him. Yay, us! Okay, sorry, that was a little silly. But that's kind of what kept haunting me in the back of my mind as I studied this passage. Okay, doesn't they kind of sound that way? Why did, were they so willing to be loyal to God? Why were they so willing to worship God? Why were they so willing to serve God? Because he had done so many wonderful things for them. He had done so many wonderful things for them. The focus wasn't on who God was. The focus is on what God can do for me, what God can do for us. And so we're going to serve him because we need his help and we want him there for us. They saw him as their savior. They saw him as their rescuer. They saw him as their warrior. They saw him as their protector. But the question is, do they truly see him as their God? And that's why in verse 19, Joshua says something. It doesn't seem to make sense at first. It says in verse 19 that Joshua replied and told the people, you will not be able to worship Yahweh because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, completely destroy you after he has been good. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I may be the only one in the room that didn't really understand this passage for a long time or these verses. See, I thought what 
Joshua was saying was the people that said, we will serve the Lord. And he said, he said, no, you won't. I was there at Deuteronomy 31. I know you won't do it. You think you'll do it, but you won't do it. Oh, yeah, we will. We'll do it. No, you won't do it. So I'm thinking, why did he tell them to choose if once they chose, he said, you won't do what you chose? I mean, doesn't that sound kind of like he's playing both, both ends against the middle? But then as I studied this passage, I realized I had it all wrong. And maybe some of you already understand what Joshua was really saying. Joshua wasn't saying, no, you won't. He was saying, no, you can't. Ah, oh, now that's different. You see, what I think Joshua is saying to the people is, I know you want to serve God. I know you want to do this, but you don't understand. You don't have it in you. You can't. It is not possible for you to do it. Why? Because number one, God is holy, absolutely, perfectly holy, and guess what? You are not. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot serve him with your whole heart. And number two, God is also jealous. He is passionately committed to his own glory being declared to the nations. And the minute that you fail to do that, he will have to punish you for that. So understand, what, God, what Joshua was saying to the people was not, oh, I think you're lying. You say you will, but you won't. He's saying, I know you think you can, but you can't. And you know what? We could just stop right there because I think that's something we have to remind ourselves. No matter how many times, especially in January, we're all about making new resolutions and committing ourselves to new things, no matter how hard we try, we cannot do it without God's help. We can make all the resolution, turn over all the new leaves we want to, but we cannot do it without God's help. But I don't know if the people got it, because if you look on then, in verse 21, they said, no, no, we will do it. And Joshua said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be witnesses to each other. Look at verse 22. Joshua told the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves have chosen to worship Yahweh. Yes, we are witnesses, they said. Then get rid of all the foreign gods that are among you, Offer your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, we will worship the Lord our God, we will obey him. And then Joshua did two things. Number one, he wrote it down. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem, established a statute and an ordinance, and he recorded these things in the book of the law of God. So he wrote down a record of what they had done. And then the second thing in verse 26, he also took a large stone and set it up there under the oak next to the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, you see this stone, it will be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words the Lord has said to us, and it will be a witness against you, so that you will not deny your God. You see what he did? Remember, Shechem was the place where the tabernacle was. Shechem was the place where they would come and bring their sacrifices, they would bring their offerings, and every time they came to the tabernacle at Shechem, what would they see over there in the corner? That big stone sitting there, and it would remind them. And they also had this written record. Now, in a, in, a nut, in a nutshell, that's the story, okay? Choose you this day. We will choose the Lord. You can't. You don't have it in you. Oh, yes, we can. Okay, then you're going to have a witness. You're going to be witnesses to each other. We're going to write this down. We're going to set up this stone, and it will be proof that you are, are held accountable to God, and you will hold each other accountable to live in obedience to the covenant you've made. Now, what did that mean to them? Let me just give you some background and help us understand what it means so that then we can translate it into our day, okay? This may seem like an easy choice to us. I mean, come on, look at all God had done for them. Why in the world would they chase down these idols? It's interesting, he says, get rid of them. That means they still had them. That means they had traveled all the way from Egypt and then their tent packs in the backpacks on their backs and the, show, and the saddlebags of their 
beasts of burden, their camels or whatever they traveled on, their donkeys, there were still Egyptian idols. They brought them 40 years with them through the wilderness, and they still had them 30 years after coming into Canaan. And Joshua says, you've got to get rid of those things. But you see, the reason I think this was so hard for them, and this is something I'm going to take just a minute and teach you just a little bit of history, is that the world that they lived in, that the Israelites lived in in those days, was a world where every major religion, every religious structure was built around a family of gods, not just one god. Monotheism, as it's called, was unknown in the world of their day. There were always these pantheons of gods. That's a word we kind of get from the Greeks because the Greeks had that too. The Romans had that too. But even in the ancient world, the ancient, ancient world, there were always multiple gods, each one that had his or her own role to play. And so because of that, you had multiple gods that you could go to when you had a problem. Multiple gods that you could call out to if your child was sick or if you were going on a trip or if there was not enough rain or if lightning struck your field and it caught on fire. There, was a, there were different gods that they could go to to take care of the different needs. So for them to say, oh yes, the Lord Yahweh, he will be our God. But just in case there's a drought, we've still got this God over here. Or this God over here we can go to. But God, Jehovah God, Yahweh God will be our primary God. But we may still want to hold on to these others just to stay safe. And the concept of having only one God who could take care of all of their needs was not as easy in the living out of it. That's why you fast forward a few centuries all the way to King Ahab. And what does Elijah say standing up on Mount Carmel? Choose you this day whom you will serve either God or Baal, they're still hedging their bets. They're still polytheists, to use the big fancy word for it. Yeah, God was their main number one man, their number number one God, but they still had these other gods. And Joshua saying, you don't understand, it's either Yahweh or the highway. You've got to choose either one or all these others. Probably the biggest one of those was the one I mentioned a minute ago, was Baal. He was the one that, in, for so many centuries, been, he was the god of the weather. So if there was a drought, they prayed to Baal. If there was too much rain, they prayed to Baal. If there was not enough rain at the right time, they prayed to Baal. Baal was the one that took care of all of their, their needs related to the weather. But he also was the god of fertility. You kind of see how that would relate because their crops, and they prayed that Baal would bless their crops. Baal also was the one that blessed their offspring. And so Baal was a very, very important god to the peoples of their day. And so there was this constant battle. And Joshua wanted to make sure they understood that it's not just about putting God first among others. It's about putting God instead of any others at all. Why do you think idolatry is so tantalizing? Why is it that people... Tended, why did the Israelites tend to do that? Well, I got to thinking about that and doing some reading about it. I think there are a couple of things. Number one, it's a lot easier to worship something you can see than something you can't see. Okay? I mean, let's just be honest. It's a whole lot easier to put your trust in something that you can see. That's why those, those trust games we play, you always have to close your eyes so you can't see. You know, and we'll have you, you know, close your arms and fall backwards and people will catch you. But you have to close your eyes because it's a lot harder to trust something or someone 
that you can't see. But not just that. Also, when you create an idol that you worship, you're still kind of in control of things, aren't you? You determine that he's going to be God of this or God of that. And in a sense, the God kind of depends on you more than you depending on the God. Now, that may not be out there in the, in the open, but kind of in the back, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, kind of like your mama said, I brought you into the world, I can take you out, you know? And so that's why the Bible speaks so strongly about these idols. As a matter of fact, in the 115th Psalm, the psalmist talks about what these idols are like. And this is just one passage among many. We could have gone to Jeremiah chapter 10. There are all kinds of other places we could have gone. But in the psalm, in Psalm 115, the psalmist describes what idols are like. Let me just take a minute and read to you verses 4 to 8. He says, their idols, meaning those who don't worship the true God, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. They have feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Now think about that description. What does the Bible say about idolatry? Well, it says, first of all, if they're handmade, then they really have no more power than the one that made them, right? And so, you know, in, in, in several of the other prophets, they talk about how a person will take a piece of wood and cut it in half. One half, they'll use this firewood to keep them warm at night or bake their food. The other half, they turn into a god, then they bow down and worship it. And they said, how crazy is that? How can that piece of wood that's carved into an idol be more powerful than the one that carved it? Are you going to put your trust in that? He also, the Bible also tells us that they're lifeless. They're dead. They have no eyes. They can't see. Well, you want a God that can see you, don't you? They have ears, but they cannot hear. What does that say about your prayers to them? Uh, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. So how can they guide you? They have hands, but they can't touch anything. They can't do anything for you. They're lifeless. But not only are they powerless, not only are they lifeless, but they give the impression of being competent, but they really aren't. It's a lie. In Jeremiah chapter 10, and we won't turn there now, but in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 15, Jeremiah says they're like scarecrows. Isn't that a cool analogy? A scarecrow can fool the crows into thinking there's really a person out in the field, but it's not a real person. And, and Jeremiah said that's exactly what idols are. They're scarecrows. They look real. They look competent. They look capable, but they can't do anything. And the Bible tells us that when we give ourselves, told the Israelites, when you give yourself to these idols, you render yourself incapable of truly serving God because he will broach no competitors, no other gods, but him alone. So for the Israelites, this was more than just saying, yes, we will see God as our primary God. It means they had to abandon everything else. I'm going to mention it now so I don't forget it later. It's like the line in the wedding vows. I don't think we use it as much as we used to, but there's a line when you do the vow with the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom, where you say, and forsaking all others, cling only to him so long as you both shall live. That's a great line. It doesn't just say, well, I'll have him as my husband or her as my wife, but I'll probably still have other girlfriends on the side just in case I need a warm place to sleep at night. No, 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 no. You forsake everyone else except this one and cling. Remember that word cling from last week? Cling only to her or to him. 
so long as you both shall live. Well, that's what it meant to the Israelites. But now I want to just sit back and relax for a few minutes and talk about what it means to us, okay? Because, beloved, I've got to be perfectly honest with you. I've said this in a lot of different ways at a lot of different times. We also can be tempted to be polytheists. We also can be tempted to be idolaters. And unfortunately, idolatry in our world today is so amazingly subtle that it can creep into our lives without us even realizing it. You see, if you ask yourself, what is an idol? What is a god? I really believe that a god is is anything that we willingly yield excessive authority to guide our lives. In other words, anything that we give the power over our decision-making becomes a god or can become a god. If we allow something other than God to influence how we decide what we do with our lives without consulting God and what his will might be, that becomes a God in our lives, that thing that we use, that person that we use to help drive our decision-making. If anything plays a more significant role in our lives than God does, that becomes an idol in our lives. And it's not a matter of us rejecting God so much as as much as it is, well, God is number one, but I also have these other things. And that's why sometimes very good things can become idols in our lives. They may not be equal with God, but they're still there. And we still kind of fall back on them in certain situations and give them a certain amount of our loyalty and allegiance rather than giving all of our loyalty and allegiance to God and to God alone. And that's when we fall into idolatry. I want to just walk you through three or four things that I think tend to be idols that can distract us in our world today. Some of them you're going to expect. Some of them might be a surprise to you. The first one, and the one I think every one of us would agree to, is materialism. Materialism is a tremendously powerful God in our lives. It's dangerous because it constantly tells us what we need It constantly tells us that there are things in our lives that can give us meaning and value that are temporal, that won't last. they are things that that we think will bring us pleasure. It claims to satisfy us when it really can't. Remember in The Little Mermaid, Ariel sings that famous song, probably the most famous song that comes out of that, that movie, Part of Your World. She looks around at all the things that she's collected. Remember the story? She has all these little gaws that she has found in shipwrecks, and she says, it looks like I have everything, but there's something missing in my life, and that's exactly what materialism does to us. It gives us more and more and more and more things that are temporary, but we still feel like we're missing something of value. Materialism has a tendency to take away our dependence on God from being totally dependent on him to only being partially dependent on him. He may be the primary one that we're dependent on, but we're also dependent on the things that we have. And it can surely eat up resources that could be committed to God's kingdom. I love one of the commentators I read made the statement, so I'm going to blame him for it. He said, any money that we spend on something that is not a need, in other words, a toy, is money that could be used for God's kingdom. And I can say the same thing about time or energy or, or anything else, any other temporary thing but if materialism is the god every god had his consort his mate 
So who is the wife of materialism? This is one that surprised me as I kind of thought through, but I think it's really true. If materialism is the god, the goddess is convenience. You say, now wait a minute, what's wrong with convenience? Is, is, is inconvenience a virtue? No. But remember, having material things is not wrong either. You know, I spent time reading a book and typing on a computer, and now we're using technology to be able to, to do this uh, pre-record. But it's when those things become too important to us. And what happens with convenience is convenience makes it so much easier for us to worship materialism. And what makes convenience so much of an idol is that 24-hour supermarket or that 24-hour superstore or that 24-hour-a-day uh, uh, gas station says, hey, we're here to serve you. We're here to look after you. Just come. Get whatever you want. Get whatever you need, anytime you need it. And if we don't have it, there's another one just like us, just 15 minutes down the road. Go to that one, and they can provide it for you. But what are they doing? All they're doing is feeding our desire to have what we want. And so convenience feeds into our materialism. But not only does it do that, think about how much more it demands out of the people that have to fulfill that service. The people that have to work 24 hours a day, working at night, working at times when they could be with their families. So convenience not only drives materialism, it also pulls people away from good, strong relationships. So we have materialism, we have convenience, but if there's one God over them, it's meism. The technical word is narcissism. This worshiping of me and what I want and how I find my value and what's most important. There was an Opus comic strip probably 10 years ago now when Oliver Wendell Jones is talking to Opus and his two friends and he holds a little grain of sand and he holds it out and he says, this grain of sand represents the space in the cosmos that the Hubble telescope focuses attention on for several weeks. And we learned so many things, and it was just one little grain of sand in the vast sea of the cosmos. And Opus and his friends are staring in rapt attention off at the billions of stars that they could see. And Oliver says, so it leads us to the one big question. One of them says, well, what is that? He said, where is the center of it all? And Opus leans back and folds his arms and says to himself, me, baby. That's the center of the universe. That's narcissism. That's meism. That's the thing that says not so much you need this. That's materialism. Meism says you deserve this because you're worth it. And meism drives us and controls us in our lives. It gives us a sense of importance. It goes far beyond what it is, rather than seeing God as the center of our lives, we see ourselves, and God becomes our servant. See, I think that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. The reason they said we'll worship the Lord is so he can help us get what we want and to conquer these nations. And sometimes, let's be honest, we fall into that pattern too. The fourth one, I'm just going to mention it in passing, and that is the God of nationalism. Now, understand there is nothing wrong with being patriotic. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about loving your country and the place that God has placed you. I'm talking about a nationalism that forces people to agree and to follow a pattern that may not be Christ-honoring because this is what my country says 
that I must do. The claim of a nation to being uniquely great, uniquely virtuous, almost godlike, and demanding universal, unquestioning loyalty. I am thankful to be an American every day. But I got to tell you, I'm more thankful to be a Christian. Because as a Christian, I can be an American citizen, a good citizen, and still question whether the decisions that we make as a nation are honoring to God. And I can be a voice, even when I am part of the minority. So those things tend to become idols in our lives. And so just like the nation of Israel, we have to decide, are we going to serve God and God alone, or are we going to serve God along with these other things? So let me finish by talking about the ways in which we need to serve God and how we do it. What does it mean for us today to serve Christ? If Joshua were standing before us today the way I am sitting in front of you via this screen today and saying, you and I have to choose. Are we going to be polytheists, put God first but have all these other things, or are we going to serve him alone? What does that mean? Number one, it means, just to be redundant in a sense, it means we have to say, Jesus is Lord. Now think about that phrase. Number one, it's specific. It's not just some amorphous, okay, we're going to serve God. We're going to try to be good people, live good lives, like I talked about last week. No, 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 no. This says we do declare that Jesus Christ is the one who will be our Lord. He will be our master. He will be the one that calls the shots for our lives. We yield ourselves to him and to him alone. By doing that, it means we do what he taught. We do the things that he taught us. He taught us to make him number one, to enthrone him, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. But also, he taught us that we should love our enemies. I was thinking this, about this. Some of you remember about 10 years ago, October 2nd, 2006, a milk delivery man walked into an Amish school in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania and began preparation for a long siege. By the time it was over, he had killed five little school girls and himself. But do you remember what happened next? There were two events that spoke to me. Number one, it was the response of the Amish community. Quiet, rural people, loved God, and they went to the family of this young man and told them that they had forgiven him. When they set up the crosses to commemorate the deaths, they put up six crosses. And they recognized that that young man also and his family needed their prayers. The other event was the church group that was going to go during the funeral service in that Amish community and protest because of the godlessness they thought of the Amish people. Wow, what a contrast. You see, Jesus taught us that we should enthrone him, that we should love each other, that we should love our enemies, and that we should put his kingdom first. If you want to know what that means, let me go to Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus declares what is important to him in serving his kingdom by the way he was going to serve. In Luke chapter 4, 18, he's in Nazareth. He's been asked to speak. 
he opens up the scroll and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to do what? To proclaim freedom to captives, to to recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Putting God's kingdom first means that we do what was important to him. Yes, it means that we wed the truth of the gospel with the need to serve those who are struggling in every way that we can. It means that we love people the way Jesus loves people. It means that we model what Jesus did. Think about the woman of Samaria. He went to the place that no good Jew would go to talk to a person that no good Jew would talk to, to to express understanding for her sin, but not dwelling on her sin, but rather dwelling on her value that she had as a daughter of God. And we have to figure out what our Samarias are. And you know what? It's not the same thing for, all, for each of us. What are the places that we feel like we should not go? Who are the people that we feel like we should not or do not want to talk to, to minister to, to relate to, and live the way that Jesus taught us and the way that he modeled for us? And I have to add to the bottom of that also, it means that we live, if we're going to truly serve God and serve Christ, we live with the goal of sharing in his sufferings. Now, every week on your yellow card, your yellow sheet in your bulletin, we have a prayer need for this struggling, suffering church. Most of us will never have to suffer that way. But we still have to suffer. And there are times when we will choose to be silent instead of speaking because we know there'll be repercussions. We choose to go along with the crowd rather than stand in opposition to the crowd because we fear the consequences of doing that. And I think that's the time when we have to remind ourselves what it means to truly suffer for the cause of Christ. It may not be losing your life. It may not be being tortured. But it may mean that you're ostracized you're ridiculed, that you're made fun of, and that's when you say, I belong to Christ, and I'm going to grieve over what grieves him. I'm going to grieve for the injustice in our world and do what I can to fix it if I can. I'm going to grieve over the sin that has impacted all of creation, just the way it breaks his heart. It's going to break mine. And we continue to walk with him. So let me finish up. This chapter has taken us through a lot of things. We look back at what God has done in our lives, how lost we were when he saved us, how much we were alienated from him when he sent his son to die for us. And it would be so easy to feel like we're going to pay him back by serving him. That's not what he asked for. Matter of fact, we can't do it. We cannot pay him back. What he wants us to do is to surrender our lives to him so that he can, through that, Give us a new life and bless us and let us be an example for him, a window so that as people look at us, they see through us and they see Christ in us as we serve him and him alone. So let me ask you, are you a polytheist? 
Are you maybe putting God first, but you also have other gods that you serve on the sly? Don't serve the creature more than the creator. Don't serve the gift more than the giver. Take those other things, put them in their proper perspective. Good things, your family, the things you do for the church, your work, your 401k, your health, your strength, any of those things that become so important to you. Oh, they're never more important than God, but they still become little gods. And let's put those things away. And let's say together, we are witnesses to each other that we will serve the Lord and Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, I constantly struggle with polytheism. I confess before my brothers and sisters who are watching this video, I confess before these two men that are working with me on the tech team that I at times make other things important enough that they color my decision. I almost did that with this sermon today until you stopped me dead in my tracks at 4.30 this morning and said, you've got to go a different direction. And I thank you for helping me and reminding me that you are most important. And these other things that you give us are good things as long as we remember that they come from your hand and they point back to you so, Father, whether it is materialism or the convenience that drives that materialism, whether it is the narcissism, whether it is a, an unflinching nationalism or some other ism that we tend to place in that pantheon, that family of gods, may we put those things aside and say, we will serve the Lord. May we do that as a church family, as we covenant to hold each other accountable, And may we together today step into this new year and say, Father, we want to serve you and you alone. And may we be witnesses. And may your word remind us every day what you have called us to do and the response that we have to make. For it's in Jesus' name.